Hi, Crime Junkies. I'm your host, Ashley Flowers, and today I'm not joined by Britt. I'm joined by someone else whose name you probably didn't know, but someone you've all been begging to hear from. I'm uh, Captain Kevin Smith. I am the Area 2 Commander for the Indiana State Police. Um, I have 31 years on the department. In the last three years, I've been the Detective Commander out of the Fort Wayne Post before I got promoted to Captain. So I spent a very long time in investigative side of our department at Fort Wayne area. As a detective for 10 years, just a regular road detective, and then a commander for three years in the detective division, and now a captain. So that's kind of why I was so heavily involved in the April Tinsley case. That's right. This is the update episode you all have been begging for. If you're brand new to Crime Junkie and listening for the very first time, go back and listen to episode 18 first. It's titled Wanted, Monster in Fort Wayne. We told the story of April Tinsley, who was an eight-year-old girl murdered in rural Indiana. For 30 years, her killer was unknown despite the fact that this guy taunted police and the community with notes over a span of years. But with the magic of DNA in what we're calling the season of justice, local law enforcement were able to apprehend her killer in July of 2018. At the time, there was little known but a name. John Miller. And following his arrest, very few details came out about him or his connection to April. There wasn't much of a story we could do until the trial happened. But when John Miller pled guilty in December and we knew there would be no trial, we worked on something even better. An interview with one of the men responsible for bringing April's killer to justice, Captain Kevin Smith of the Indiana State Police. We were given a room in the Indianapolis headquarters to talk in, which is why the audio is a little different than what you're used to, but the story he has to tell is incredible. We're going to give you my unedited conversation with Captain Smith, and you'll hear him discuss how they came up with the idea to use genealogy, what it was like finally capturing a man they'd been chasing for 30 years, and what all of this means for the future of law enforcement. Working on her case? Uh, I worked on it when I got into Detective Vision in 2005. Everybody worked on it. it was such a big case. The, the, it occurred my my probationary year. I came on in December of 87 as a new trooper and got sent up to northeast Indiana to Angola's Tubin County area to work. And it, I got sent up there December 19th. We graduated of 87. And it occurred on April 1st of 88. So I had just gotten my car. I had been to my training and had just was out on my own. And it happened to, well, the, April was found in DeKalb County, and I was living in Stubin, so right next to each other. Mm-hmm. So I obviously I didn't work on it as a rookie trooper, but it was a big deal. Everybody knew about it. It was all over the news, even before the Internet. Then it still got a lot of new, news coverage back then on the Fort Wayne stations. I was, that's what I was going to ask, too, is at the time, it seems like that was like unlike anything they had in the area. Was it, it was, yeah, it was. We had, they hadn't had anything in that area. They had one a few years later. Kind of similar to the Sarah Bowker case, which is still technically unsolved. But uh, they hadn't had anything before that for a long time like that. Nothing like that 
at all, and that it was a big news deal back then. And what was it that made everyone so sure? Was it that the DNA didn't match in the Sarah case and April case? Because I kept seeing, even years and years later, those two getting linked. But you guys had said all along you didn't think that they were linked. Well, I, do, I didn't work specifically on the Sarah Balker case. Uh, a bunch of our guys did. But um, I trust their judgment that uh, at this point everybody's pretty well satisfied that those two cases are not linked. I think there's enough information out there that we don't believe they're linked. What kind of stuff, and if you can't say, you can't say, um, what kind of stuff did you guys hold back in this case? Well, I'll tell you, in April Tinsley case, because it spans so many years, 30, and because there was so much media coverage on it that, that never really ended, uh, the, the Fort Wayne news media was really good on that case. We, and I work very closely with the media. I have a great relationship with them. They are very helpful to us um, on these type of cases. In fact, they're invaluable because of the broad spectrum they cover was getting information out. And they, I mean, literally every year on the anniversary, April 1st or April 4th, the, the body was found on the 4th, they would run something on the on the four Fort Wayne news stations, which covers, that's the second biggest city in the state. Fort Wayne's got 200-some thousand people in it. That's a lot of coverage. We got that every year. Um, everybody that had lived in Fort Wayne for more than six months knew about the April Tinsley case. So because of that, you know, they're con- they were constantly wanting to try to help us over every year so we did between us and the city of Fort Wayne who we worked it together um, because she was abducted in the city limits and that's where it started and she was found in DeKalb County out in the rural area three days later so that's where we got heavily involved then because we oftentimes do the rural stuff and we worked it together for all those years but because there was all that coverage for all those years we did slowly release more than we probably normally would, trying to get something back. You know, we usually don't release much. Mm-hmm. Um, but if it goes on and on and on and on, you're not getting anything, you got to give them something new um, for the public to maybe make a connection somewhere. So there was a lot, I mean, I, I've spoken before about this. There was about as much information released on that case as you're ever going to find. There weren't many secrets left. Um, there just weren't. Mm-hmm. We had talked about what was the scene what we had as far as DNA goes, that stuff was all public. You can go on Google before we solved it and pull up all kinds of stuff. Copies of the notes that were found that was mm-hmm. that was made public eventually, hoping somebody would recognize the handwriting. So that stuff usually isn't, but it was in this case. It's crazy. So the the guy that obviously got caught, mm-hmm. so how did you guys decide to use the Parabon, the genealogy? Did they approach you or did you guys approach them? It, it, that story goes back a ways. Um, and there's other people involved in it too, and I don't want to speak for them, but I'll give you what we, what I can tell you. Um, in about 2008, uh, I think I think Parabon Nano Labs was actually founded in 2008. They started as a company. Steve Armentrout and his wife started that company, um, and they they their specialty at that time, my understanding is, is the. Uh, is the phenotype, the snapshots, mm-hmm. pictures based on DNA. Give me, a, I can give you a composite picture of your suspect based on a DNA sample if you provide us with a sample. That's what they started their business specializing in for law enforcement. And they came to us, uh, us and us being us in Fort Wayne City, because we worked it together, in 2008 and as a brand new company and said, here's what we're doing. Uh, we'll be happy that we would like to try this on the Tinsley case. It's a pretty big case. Can we help you? Because 2008 is the 20th anniversary, so it's getting a lot of press. We had a big push 
investigatively, we had a couple weeks we devoted just to this for a whole bunch of detectives. Spent a ton of time working on it, like, you know, took a ton of DNA samples, asked all kinds of help from the public, got a lot more leads and a bunch more DNA. So they said, hey, well, let's, let us do this. We can, let's try it. Um, they did it. So they, they were, that was their very first case. If you talk to Steve Armitrout, the owner, he will tell you that is the very first case they did for law enforcement, is the April Tinsley case. On that, on that, you know, that, Snapshot. So we had a history with them on this. And uh, even though we didn't have anything else going on with them at that point, because we, you know, in 2008, we didn't know about this other. They didn't either. Maybe they did, but nobody really knew that much. Um, but in, I, I, I was made the detective commander at Fort Wayne in 2015. Um, and I, uh, I've always paid very close attention as a detective the 10 years I was a detective. I worked a ton of cold cases. That was kind of a specialty I had was cold cases. My supervisors at that time let me do it because I had an interest in it. Cold cases are totally different. Um, your mindset investigatively, even your personality has to be different. You have to be willing to go long periods of time without gaining any ground and still be okay with it. Um, we talk about, in law enforcement, we talk a lot about immediate gratification um, with like road patrol officers, a guy that's just on road patrol officers. If you, I worked road for 14 years. That's an immediate gratification job. Cause you go out, you stop a car that's doing something wrong and you take care of it right there. You write them a ticket or a warning or a verbal warning and you let them go. So you've identified the problem, dealt with it, punished it, move on. That's immediate gratification. You get in that groove on the road Okay, when you go on investigations, you have to slow down if you're going to be a detective. Just as a regular detective, you got to slow down because cases take a long time. It takes weeks, months, sometimes years to work cases to get some type of culmination. Even a, a current homicide that occurs where you go right out and the suspect's right there and you've got him in custody, even that, by the time you get all the evidentiary information done, all the witnesses and the interviews, all the paperwork done, the prosecutor getting charged, by the time it goes through the courts and is adjudicated, it can be a year or two. You got to slow down and get your mind set for that when you go in to be a full-time detective. So most of the detectives have a really, and then some people can't do that. Some people are immediate gratification people; they can never get into that group. They would struggle as a detective if they were. Um, so our detectives generally are pretty good at that. They gravitate toward that. But even amongst detectives, if you're going to work cold cases, you got to really learn how to deal with that. It's very frustrating, and you you can't let it get to you and keep you from working on it because you will literally go years without anything positive but you have to keep going back and looking you got to read it again and you got to pay attention to what's going on in the world okay you can't get too focused and fortunately for me um, with my supervisors for all that 10 years I was a detective they allowed me because I had an interest to work cold cases because a lot of guys don't want to work them because they're so frustrating mm -hmm. I know a lot of detectives are fantastic detectives, but they don't do so well on the cold case side because it's just so grinding. You just never get anywhere. I feel like I'm never gaining any ground. Okay, I don't mind that. I mean, it's still frustrating, but I can deal with it. The, the, the end game is so big for me that I, it's, I'm good with it. Okay, just I'm going to get there, maybe. Maybe not. i got a lot of them that I've never gotten anywhere on, but... But I've got a couple of them, I've got three of them that I have. That's plenty. That's three cold cases is a lot. 
in this business. I know this guy's done a lot more, but uh, as hard as they are to do, the reason they're not solved, they were hard to start with. I always tell guys that new detectives, the reason that case is 20 years old is because it was really hard when it started and still is, and it's getting harder every day. You cannot solve a cold case unless you work on it. If you just leave it sit there, I mean, there can be the random one in a million times where somebody just calls in and says, hey, I want to tell you something. That does occasionally happen, but man, it's rare. 99% of the time, it's because you went out and kept doing things. So I always, with my bosses letting me do that, I also, probably a little more than most of our guys, I paid really close attention to what's going on around the country, even the other country. Every morning, I get on MSN and read anything to do with solving of crimes, major cases. There's sometimes you, there's small stories on there that are not very well put, not in the big box on MSN, but small ones that, you know, this is going on in Washington State. And I remember seeing this issue out in Washington State in 2015 where they solved two cases using this technique that nobody knew what to call it even. I didn't. Uh, and I read, I, I, as soon as I read those cases, I remember sitting at my desk reading them. Um, as much as I could dig up on them and reading that, you know, we got a couple detectives that are at a, a law enforcement conference out west, and they've got a there's a, a genetic researcher there that, that's the civilian, and they happen to be at the same conference. Um, they end up, uh, these guys have a, an active serial killer case with uh, four, five, six victims. They've got a short suspect list, but they don't, they don't know who it is. Um, and they're, they're able to get this information. She gets access to this information about their case and what they're looking for, and they've got this DNA sample from their suspect available. And she's like, I'm just, as I'm reading, this is me reading the article in, in 15 or 16, is like, uh, you know, if you let me have access to that, I, I, maybe I can help you. I don't know. So I'm reading this thinking, okay. When I read it, she's saying, well, here, you know, I have... I know how to use these genealogy databases. I have access to them. Um, and she told them when she got done with her work, you know, your subject's last name is most likely going to be this. Because based on his genetic profile, his last name, he's out of this family tree. And they're like, well, one of our five is that last name. They go get a DNA sample and it's a match. It's their guy. That's the first one that I know of. So... I mean, I had read that and was fascinated by it, but still didn't understand how it worked. I mean, kind of, I, don't, I don't understand what she means by being a, a geneticist. I'm not so... I had a little, a little familiarity, but if you'd asked me back then, you know, how do we do this, I have no idea. I didn't, that's, whatever they're doing is neat, but uh, hopefully we can figure out what it is. But the, the thing that got me, and now... Fort Wayne City also is working this with us. We had a group that met every, tried to meet every month or two at our post in Fort Wayne, a couple of Fort Wayne City detectives who were on this case for years, um, Brian Martin, Kerry Young, and Allen County Sheriff's Department uh, detective who was on there. Um, we had a uh, task force officer for the FBI that was on there. Um, you know, our guys, our detectives that had been on it, there have been numerous ones of our guys on it over the years. Some of them are retired, many of them are retired. But the rest of us had still jumped in. So we met as often as we could. You know, we still had a suspect list that we would look at. You guys met, and it was just to talk about the April Tinsley case? Oh, yeah. We would try to meet every couple months, if we could, out at the post, just to sit down and say, okay. Because we had, 
we had a group of maybe there was like 10 we had taken hundreds of dna samples over the years but we had a group of eight or ten or twelve of them that people wouldn't voluntarily give it to us they said no when we asked we didn't have enough to get a warrant so we were continually trying to get that dna just to limit that whittle down that suspect list even more to where we've got everybody's dna that we know of and nobody's matching because we had the full profile at that point in time so we would meet and say, okay, here, we've got, there's these six people, we're still working on it, we're gonna go try to talk to them again, we're gonna get a covert sample, whatever. We met regularly about it. And uh, Brian Martin, who kind of took over as the lead for Fort Wayne City, uh, had been in contact with Parabon. I didn't know a whole lot about it at the time, but he had, and we had kind of talked about some stuff. Um, and he was kind of doing his thing with Parabon, and I was kind of researching on my end. And it all kind of, the timing, we didn't really, had really spoke directly about it, but the timing kind of came together at the right time. Um, in 2016, I was at the post, work, I was a detective commander, and I'm you know going there every morning and start doing my thing, and we get a lot of phone calls at the post. Uh, Fort Wayne's the biggest state police district in the, in the state. There's 11 counties up there we cover, so it's a big one. We get a lot of phone calls, a lot of people walking in, a lot going on, cases were going, we got a lot of cold cases, but that's the big one. That is the, probably the biggest, it was the biggest unsolved homicide in the history of Fort Wayne. As far as publicity, it was huge. I get a call from a lady who I don't know, who identifies herself as Susie Hope. And she said, um, I was given that name by the community up in Angola. And I said, Angola, that's where I live. She goes, well, she goes, if you look in the local Angola paper, the Herald Republican, which is our local newspaper, I read it often, but not every day. Um, there's an article in there, in the editorial thing that I wrote, and asking for help. And she said, in November of 1963, which is the month and year that John Kennedy, President Kennedy, was assassinated in Texas, same month and year, it was a year before I was born, um, she says, I was left on a doorstep in Angola, Indiana, kind of on the southwest side of town in a neighborhood on somebody's porch as a brand new infant. She said the people in the house come out in the morning to go to, you know, do their daily thing, and here I am, wrapped up in a blanket on the porch. And she said, I, that was 52, 53 years ago, and uh, she said, I've been trying to find out who I am ever since. I said, okay. She said, I wonder if you can help me. I said, sure. She says, she said, I was adopted. She said, I have no complaints. I'm not looking for any issues. She said, I was adopted eventually. I have a great life. Everything went fine. I got wonderful adoptive parents. I'm trying to, for some health reasons, I'm trying to figure out who I am. I want to know some of my genetic background. Okay. She said, apparently it was a pretty big deal back then when that happened. They named me the doorstep baby, and eventually they named me Susie Hope. And uh, she said it was all over the newspapers. I've got those old newspaper articles. Um, she said the police got involved, did an investigation, the Angola City Police, and it says in the newspaper that the Indiana State Police also investigated it, tried to find out who my parents were, who dropped me there. And she said, I've got that, you know, those newspaper reports. I've got my whole file from uh, back then. It would have been the welfare, child welfare. It's now called something different. But I've got all that information. I've gotten it over the years, but it, we have never been able to figure out who my parents, biological parents are. Okay. I said, well, I'll tell you what, let me look. This is news to me, and I'm from Angola. You know, that was a long time before I got there, but I'd never heard this. So I said, let me do some digging, see if I can find our reports and what our guys investigated. There would have been a detective, I'm sure, assigned to it. See if there's anything in there, any leads. 
and I dug and dug and dug and dug, and I, in all reality, couldn't hardly find anything. Now, that's a long time ago. Um, so that sometimes that stuff that old is just not there anymore. That's really getting back there. So uh, I did. I know. I know who the detective is that worked back then. He's since passed. I'd since passed away. Um, and uh, I made some phone calls of the old timers that were still around. Uh, boy, they just couldn't hardly barely remember the whole thing. Anyway, it's just so long ago. So long story short, I couldn't. I would love to have helped her. She was a nice gal. I just couldn't help her. I, sorry. I said, man, if there's anything else I can... I did... Well, was able to access some old uh, uh, city directories that showed who lived in what house because she knew where she was dropped at, you know, who the neighbors were around if she wanted to start digging on that because um, it really wasn't a criminal investigative matter, if you know what I mean. It was just a interest for her. It wasn't a crime that we... Not not today, anyway. So, And I pulled up the article that she had in the paper and read it. Now, she had an ad, she put an email address in there and said, if anybody can help me, email me at this address. It was very interesting. And I didn't, I mean, it was, I didn't put anything together on it until about two months later, she calls me back out of the blue and says, hey, this is Susie Hope. Yeah, sure. Susie, what's up? She says, I want to let you know I found my birth parents. I said, you have to be kidding me. I couldn't believe it. She goes, no, I did. I said, what are the chances? She goes, I said, how did you find them? She said, uh, I used a genealogy website. She said, I sent my DNA into a genealogy website. And she said, in no time, they sent me a report back and said, here's your mom, here's your dad. I said, I mean, I literally had chills. I said, you've got to be kidding me. She said, no. Really? So I talked to her a little bit, and I said, and I hung up the phone, and, and my next phone call was to the guys in the group. And I said, we got to talk about this. Immediately walked right back to our laboratory. We have a lab at Fort Wayne. We're one of the regional labs, and we've got DNA people there that are, I work with every day. And I went back to them and said, how does this work? I know how our the law enforcement side of DNA works. I know how our, the, with CODIS and all that. But how does these genealogy websites work? Is it the same? They're going, oh, no, no. It's different. Still DNA, different, different way of processing it. Law enforcement does STR, short tandem repeat DNR, DNA. That's what CODIS is. So when they do a profile, it's using a, for lack of a better term, it's using an STR DNA machine that puts it in an STR format. It looks at certain spots of the human genome. They said, and the gals told me, she said, the genealogy websites like 23meancestry.com and all the others, um, you know, you, you go in and sign up and ask for the DNA thing, and they send you a kit, and you just spit in the tube. You put slime in the tube and send it back to them, and they they do SNP, what's often referred to as SNP testing. That's different. It looks at, it looks at very small pieces of the human genome, like 600,000 locations, really small pieces all over it, which allows them to get family groups out of it because they're looking at such a big, broad base of your DNA, they can... They can see what, when you're matching up with all these other people in so many places you have to be related because there's too many places you match. She says, totally different. I said, okay, can you, you know, I got all these questions. I'm not a, not a scientist. Can you, you know, can you convert an STR DNA profile that we have into it? No, no, no. Apples and oranges. Test, you have to retest with a fresh sample doing the SNP side with the SNP machine, for lack of a better term. This is all in the same day, so I'm like, wow, I'm learning a lot here today. And we that day, we, we got the guys together, and so I said, you know, and Brian Martin had already been headed down that road. 
he was kind of on his side. We kind of kind of met at the same time, and we're like, yeah, Parabon and and okay. So Brian went down that road um, uh, with Parabon, and because they had been our, you know, we had been their first phenotype case. So we were, you know, we were close with them because we started their deal. So they's like, yeah, this Tinsley case, absolutely. We we can do that now. We can do the genealogy research and the SNP testing. We can do that. Um, it's very interesting. So Brian got them their sample and they they turned it, got an SNP profile um, because we had extra sample from this suspect that he had left those samples when he left all the photographs and the notes on the kids' bicycles in 2004. If he wouldn't have left that, would, did you have any sample left from the actual crime scene? No, I don't believe hardly any. Wow. That, that was critical, to say the least, that we had extra sample. Absolutely critical. And so then when you're sending this off, this is 2016, that you're... No, we, oh. didn't, we didn't get to the point where we actually sent it back. We, talk, we discussed it for months, okay. trying to get everybody on the same page, because we had, we had questions. Um, even though that there had been a couple cases in, in Washington State in 15, and there was one other that broke early just before we ours did, there was one that broke in early uh, 18, just before while we were still doing it. But in that year and a half there, uh, this was new stuff to a lot of people. Talking about all of the legal implications, and so you guys had to check with people. Yeah, I mean, in that year, year and a half between 16 and, and early 18, um, we were trying to hash out some questions because, it, I mean, granted, it had been done a few times across the country, but it had never been done in Indiana, so we have our own set of laws. Um, and I, there was just a lot of questions that we all had. Um, even legal counsel had some questions to us. Thought, we're not sure because this is new stuff, no case law on it. So we kind of kicked that stuff around for a while. And how, what's the best way to do this? Did you guys feel like you were in a rush with the clock? I mean, it had been so many years. Did you think he was dead? Because I know, like, when I talk to people, like, the crime stoppers in Fort Wayne, they're like, this guy's dead. No way. Yeah, I mean, that, amongst the group over the years, you get that opinion. It was, And I can't blame anybody for having it um, because he'd been never been on a race. I mean, the fact that he was not in CODIS was virtually a miracle. That, that makes you think that a guy's deceased because, because of the severity and the violence of the crime involving a child. The chance you would think the chances of a guy being able to stay out of another felony arrest for CODIS over the years would be almost zero. Because if he's that violent, he's going to get arrested again for something and be in CODIS, but he's never in there. Um, so we thought it's certainly possible that he's been dead for a long time, um, but we don't know that. So you man, you don't know. We do know that he's not dead in 2004. So. I mean, he's, we're within 14 or 15 years we know he was alive, so we just assume that he is. You know, the other thing that I always felt like he probably was because I had access to, we all, law enforcement, we had access to the Polaroid photos that he left. And obviously you couldn't see his face, obviously, but you could see parts of his body. Um, and I had actually taken those photos and shown them to a forensic pathologist that I worked worked very closely with at the time, who had a, a lot of experience. Um, and, I mean, even just a, as a person um, with life experience, when you look at those photographs, the part of him that you could see didn't look like an old man to me. 
and same, I got the exact same opinion from the forensic pathologist. Give me an approximate, because we, if, if we can assume those photographs and extra samples on the bicycles and the mailbox were left in 2004. Uh, I probably, when I sent those or gave those or showed them to the forensic pathologist, I'm going to say that was probably in the ballpark of 2011 or 12, somewhere in there. So it really wasn't that eight or ten years before that. I'm assuming those Polaroids were taken at the same time in 04, probably where they, they probably weren't held for years. I'm assuming that they were, let's just guess that they're taken in 04 and put at the, in those locations. I mean, I wasn't thinking he was any, he was over 40 by the photographs. So I thought, it's not like he was 50 when he did this in the 80s and now he's 100. No, I'm not I'm buying that. But we just, you don't know. So, um, but we finally came to grips with the fact that it, Let's go ahead and do this. Brian did, and and give Brian all the kudos in the world. Brian Martin from Fort Wayne City um, got the sample off the Parabon, um, and it, right around that same time, I, you know, we were really was really starting to push the envelope on how this is going to work. I uh, and in the, just coincidentally on the timing, the Golden State Killer case broke. Well, and it's so funny because like to to know that you guys had the ball rolling this in 2016. Everyone I talked to was like, oh, they got the idea because of the Golden State Killer. Well, no, we didn't. We had the idea before, but, and actually, we, we actually, Brian Martin sent the sample to Parabon in March, but well before the Golden State Killer was captured and all that came out. They were obviously doing it. We didn't know that, that they were doing that process, but he, had, so we were on the, we had actually taken the first big step before it ever broke, but I can tell you when that happened, I was, I mean, I remember going into the work that day and firing up the computer and seeing that go. And, I, and the reason it's interesting to me because I teach a serial killer class at Trine University in the spring. And I was teaching it, and I profile different, you know, the, everybody knows them, the Ted Bundys, the John Wayne Gacy's, all of them. Uh, I, and the Golden State Killer, the name was new. If you know that, that gal, I, I apologize for not knowing her name. She passed, I believe. Michelle she passed McNair. away, didn't she? Yep. Yeah. Anyway, she wrote that book, and kind of that was her name for him because she kind of linked all those together because he was the east area rapist and in the north and you know um so she kind of came up with this golden state killer name and and he was that starting to get some traction we got this huge unsolved serial killer from out there so i had profiled that case in our class we meet on thursday nights for three hours before this and then like two weeks before i go into boom Big box MSN, Golden State Killer, I didn't I went, you got to be kidding me. And I got on my email right away to the students and said, You have no idea how lucky you are. You know how often this happens? They just solved the Golden State Killer case two weeks after we talked to him. It's been going on for forty five years. I said, This is crazy. This is great for us in class to talk about. And I but I read the article before I sent the email and I'm like, They're using genetic genealogy. That's this the timing is amazing on this. So once again, went back to the lab gals and had the same discussions, and, and they're like, "Yeah, that's I'm sure that's what they're doing." Um, so I read the whole article, and it listed Paul Holes on there as the, the Constra County District Attorney's Office investigator. That kind of was he was kind of the lead that was listed as the person who solved it. I know there was a large group of people that worked on it. So I said, "Man, I got to talk to him. I want he's got to explain exactly how they do this." I was able to get in contact with his office. He retired actually right after that. He retired right after they solved that case. I mean, go out on top. <laughs> yeah, why not? I can't blame him there. 
and I, he got back to me and said, "Hey, I'm you know I'm moving out of state because I'm retiring. Just, it's going to be a couple weeks, but I will call you." And about two weeks later, he called me. Now at this point, we've already sent the, Brandon Martin's already sent the sample in, but uh, I still didn't really understand where we were at on it. So he calls me, and I I uh, talking to him and. He gives me the very basics, and I said, well, you know, did you do a covert sample, or did you do a known, did you send a, a sample into GEDmatch with a fake name in it? Because to not tip them off as to what you were doing, and he's, he told us what they did, and he said, but you really need to talk to uh, Steve Kramer with the FBI. Steve Kramer is a general counsel for the FBI in Southern California. He said he understands the science of this. This is kind of his idea. He really understands. You need to talk to him. He'll, he can fill in all these gaps. And he gave me his number, and uh, within minutes, I, he, he and I were on the phone. And I'm like, here's the, I just talked to Paul, and he's, oh, yeah, okay. And um, he kind of gave me his background on how he introduced this into the Golden State Killer case. And uh, he, he said, tell me what you have. And I told him. And I said, we've got these extra samples from 04 that he left for us. Um, and it, it was crazy that that hour conversation between him and Paul and I, the three of us, was was one of the, is the more memorable things I'll ever have. He said, "I'm telling you, Kevin." He said, "You got." He said, "You're going to know who killed her by the end of the summer." I said, "Really?" I said, uh, "I said, Steve, I man, I, I love your confidence because I got plenty myself." I said, "But re- I said this is a thirty really." He said, "You're going to know who killed her by the end of this summer." He said, "I'm telling you, the information's in these websites." I said, okay. He said, just hang on. It's You're going to figure this out real quick. And, uh, I mean, there was a, some other hoops to jump through, but long story short, wasn't much longer. Early July, we get a phone call, and it's Parabon, and they're like, uh, can you guys get together today in a group because we need to talk to you? Sure. And we went down to Fort MPD with four or five of the group and got them on the speakerphone and um, C.C. Moore, who works for Paravon now, was on there, along with Steve Armitrout. And she sent us a PowerPoint and said, and started going through it. And, uh, you know, within 15 minutes, she said, here's your two. It's, it can only be the, one of these two people, the only two people in the world that could have done this. It's only two. Brothers? Yeah. I said, I mean, everybody, in the, I mean, these are, we got guys that have been policemen a long time, done a lot of cases, and we're all like, wow. Speechless. One of these two, it has to, can't be anybody else. Okay, so we start doing our digging on the two, and um, I believe that was on a Monday. It was a Monday, July 2nd, whatever day that was. It was a Monday. We had that call at 1 o'clock in the afternoon. The next day was July 4th. So it was Monday, July 3rd. The next day, I believe, was a holiday because we everybody was off because we're like, let's go right now. And we're like, well, tomorrow we can't. They won't let us. You know, tomorrow's a holiday. We're supposed to be off. Everybody else is going to be, courts are going to be closed, so we can't get so we're like, okay, trash pulls on Friday. We're going to do trash pulls at two houses, both brothers on Friday. Do you, I, I've, I've always wanted to ask this, do you have to have a warrant to even do a trash pull, or can no. you trash pull on anyone? You can generally trash pull on with any, any kind of reason. Yeah, you can, you can trash pull. Okay. I mean, it's abandoned property. Right. That's, that's been deciding case law for years. Okay. You can just go get it. So that was the next step. You guys Trash you, pulls. Trash Three pulls. days later, did them. When you did a little bit of background on the brothers, did you have an inclination one way or the other? Yes. Okay. Uh, because of some handwriting, we had all those notes that he left, and um, we had access to some handwriting stuff through the BMV. Because when you go get your driver's license, you 
sign for it, and it, therefore your signature is. And, and they keep some historical information. BNB keeps historical information back many years that show your previous licenses with your previous photographs, and it shows your name underneath them. So we, we had a handwriting sample that looked really close on John Miller. And so that's interesting because a lot of people thought that he, like, faked his handwriting or tried to make it look bad, but that was really it. That was his handwriting. And we like, we're going to do both because it, why not? But this really looks good. We'll see. So that, you know, three days later we had guys doing trash pulls. And had his name ever come up before? Never. Never. So you do the trash pull. How long till you guys got the results back? Um, did the trash pull on Friday. Uh, the uh, contents were delivered to the laboratory here in Indianapolis, um, right downtown. Yeah, we drove them, our guy drove them down there in person that day on Friday, so they'd have them right away. And uh, Monday morning at 8.15, uh, Stacy from the lab in Indianapolis called, Bodanowski, Bodzanowski. She called, called me direct and said, it's a match, John Miller. I said, Jesus, really? Started crying. Did. So she, you kidding me? Nope. So it's like, that's that's cool. Yeah. I mean, it's it's horrible, but it's cool. You know what I mean? It's everything. It's all emotions, but it's awesome because we got him. Because CC Moore had told us everything about him, both of them. Here's where they live. Here's where they lived for the last thirty years. Here's where the old addresses. Here's who they were married to. Here's one guy was married. One guy was not. She had the history because that was what she does in her profile. When she identifies, she gives you the whole background. So we already knew a lot about him. Um, and like, well, okay. So then we started putting two and two. Okay, kind of makes sense. Where does he live? He lives in Grable, Indiana. Let's look at the map. One of the letters and Polaroid pictures left two, two and a half blocks from where he'd been living for years. Close. And, he, and plus... Grable is right in the middle of where the, those were left. If you look at the map and circle it, he's like right, you know, you've seen the crime diagrams, for lack of a better term, where they, the guy, person always lives right in the center of them. Well, right in the center where the notes were left. Now, there's a lot of people in that area in Fort Wayne, but still, he's right in the middle of it, so it just all added up. So, that you know, that was on Monday we had it, and, you know, it wasn't long later we arrested him. Week so and a half, week did later. You, did you show up to arrest him, or was it someone else? I had uh, Brian Martin, the lead for Fort Wayne City, and our lead, or Indiana State Police at Fort Wayne, was Clint Hetrick, mm-hmm. who worked for us. Um, we, we we had sat down and had uh, several discussions, obviously, in the next several days after we had a match, uh, getting a team together, and, okay, who's going to do the interviews? You know, you have to, that's a selection process. Who's Who's the best at interviewing? Who knows this case the best? What two fit, you know, there's a lot of variables. Interviewing is a very interesting study. Um, styles are different when you're doing an interview with two people as opposed to one. As far as the policemen go, you want to make sure you match up your styles right. You don't ever want to put two alpha, alpha interviewers on the same team. Even though they'll, they may be the best policemen ever and great interviewers, they oftentimes struggle unconsciously struggle with each other in the interview trying to who's trying to lead it you don't want that dynamic you want an alpha interviewer and one that's not an alpha interviewer or one that can be and let one play off the other you don't want two that are constantly pushing it doesn't work it's chemistry um if it's two if it's one it's different uh but we had a brian martin and clint hetrick 
work together all the time because our Clint, our guy, has an office right down there in the city county building. So he's in there with those guys all every day. has been for several years. A very good relationship. They get along great. They've interviewed many people together. They've got a great – because we had guys on the, inter, on the group, myself, Mark Heffelfinger, who had got a ton of experience, done a ton of cold cases, got a lot of interviewing experience. It's not the point. Um, Brian and Clint have – chemistry on interviews that works it had been proven before so you guys are going to do it they both knew the case like the back of their hand anyway they've been working on it and they were on that small group anyway but that it's a perfect setup so we you know we just discussed how are we going to approach you know we just got that's the kind of stuff we normally discuss anyway but you know how, how what's the best way to approach we did quite a bit of surveillance just to get his pattern down so we knew where he was going to be at what time so we could approach correctly and we did quite a bit of surveillance for a couple weeks or a week there and got his habits and history down, and and uh, then you know they we had set it up on on that Sunday, and they approached him that Sunday morning when he he, he was third shift guy, he got off work and came home, and um, our Brian and Clint approached him when he pulled up to in front of his residence there in Grable that Sunday morning, and um, very politely you know hey so here's who we are, um, very non-aggressive style just you know in a, in an unmarked vehicle. Um, we'd like to talk to you. Didn't tell him why, if we could. And you know, would you be willing to come down and talk to us? Sure. No questions. No, that's unusual. You would think. You would at least ask, well, what's it about? You know, none. So trip down to Fort Wayne PD downtown and in the interview room. The rest of us were there on, in the other room observing, a bunch of us. And um, couldn't have gone any better. Mirandized. Completely agreed to talk to us freely. And... Um, as as has been reported in the news media several times, he, after Mirandizing, was for, fortunate for everybody involved. The only probably the only good thing John Miller ever did was at least tell us what happened, and was more than willing to do so. Uh, immediately was you know one of the first questions that Brian asked him was, "You know why we're here?" Yeah, it's probably about April Tinsley. You know that's there was a, a for me, but from the other people in the room, I can probably most likely have the same feeling that's a good feeling to have when you when that's the first thing he says because you know he's going to be cooperative when you ask him why we're here and he says april tinsley you know he's going to tell you he's not guarded at all about it he's he's resided himself to the fact that if he ever he probably has thought about this in the past if he ever gotten in this situation he's just going to tell him i'm sure he's thought about this a million times in 30 years so he he's going to talk and he did so and what did, I mean, what, what, as much as you can tell us, what did he say? I mean, why? Well, he, he answered the questions we had. He admitted the fact that he had kidnapped her, abducted her off the street, and killed her um, in basically the same day, and then eventually dumped her body up into Cal County. He just told us the details of what he did. Uh, did without, he, go ahead. Did we know why? Like, did he know her? Was it? No, he, did, he had no connection to her. He, it, just, it was just an opportunity crime. Crime of opportunity. Was he planning on abducting somebody that day or just drove by and saw her? I mean, the indications we got from his interview was that he not he wasn't planning on abducting somebody that day. He just, he had, for lack of a better term, he had that desire inside of him to do that. Not just on that day, but he just had it. It's in him. So I don't think it was planned. He didn't know her. We have no indication. He didn't tell us that. I don't believe he did either. I don't believe he had any indication she was going to be there. It just happened. He was just there at the time, and there she is. So... That you know, like I say, the only good thing John Miller ever did was at least tell us what happened, so we did to answer some questions. 
So, I mean, that was a great day. It was a horrible day. It was a great day, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. Fortunately, he gave us everything we needed to know. That's good. Answered a lot of questions for the family, but doesn't make it even the slightest bit easier. Never, It never will get easier. It's always just, you know, the loss of kids. Unfortunately, I've dealt with a lot of parents that have lost kids through many ways, traffic accidents, homicides, natural deaths, whatever. But um, it, it, it's... I don't. I don't think there's even being a parent. I don't believe there's an argument. It is probably the worst thing you could ever go through is to lose a child. I don't think there's anything worse than having to deal with that. Um, so it doesn't make it easier on them. But it, I'm sure, it certainly is at least welcomed that there's maybe some justice now, and there, there has been. The, the uh, prosecutor's office did a great job. Got a, in my opinion, a very um, appropriate plea. Uh, for John, considering age, health, etc., and you know he's a little older than me. He's 57 or eight or nine, somewhere in that ballpark. You know, basically got a 40-year sentence. Okay. Um, I know there was some discussion about the death penalty. There's a lot. There's a lot of a lot of things that have to go into that. A lot of things to think about. And I know it's very difficult for the family. I know they would like to see that. I understand. I certainly understand their side of it. So I. I mean, it was. You could feel. I mean, when we we arrested him on Sunday, and by Sunday afternoon it had hit the news media that we had arrested him. And as you can imagine, of course, we knew it for two weeks, but nobody else did it. It just was a huge story. Um, and, you know, within two weeks was on the Today Show and all because of the process and because that case is a big one. Um, that case was, you know, uh, Nick Mick, the National Center for Missing and Children, is uh, that was way up on their radar for a long time the Portinsley case was. They had provided some funding to help investigate that case. So that was in one of their top tier cases unsolved for years. Um, so it, that combined with the fact that a couple, three weeks before that, the case with the disc jockey in Pennsylvania broke using the same process before us and we were right in the middle of ours. So it, in that case, was the first case the ones out in Washington got very moderate almost regional attention you had to know what you're looking for to find the story the the one in Pennsylvania got national news and we were right at so now it's on the radar of all these national news stations that this new process is out there and it's it's there's some concern about it people are you know there's some privacy rights people are up in arms about it and there's some concern but it's unbelievably powerful it's solving cases that nobody else could solve. Um, it just—it really hit the media big, mm-hmm. um, and you could sense in the Fort Wayne area the next couple of days because it was—I mean, with you know Wovo being a huge AM station up there and the, the the overall span that they get with news coverage and stuff locally, um, they, it was just constant news coverage about it and, and on the local TV stations. You could really feel. Um, the relief of the community just in general. I had so many people that came up to me and said, man, you know, they had no connection to the case. I mean, none. People from the smaller towns around, you know, Angola where I'm at, that, you know, that didn't really know that much about the case other than what they saw on TV. You could, I mean, they would almost be in tears talk about how glad they were that we got the guy. So that was a good feeling in Fort Wayne. And then, of course, it, it got uh, to the national level. Um, a lot of that's because of the process that was used, uh, and now it had gotten some traction. And now everybody wants to know how does this work and how's this going to, you know, Joseph D'Angelo, 
okay, we got the Golden State Killer doing this, we got the guy in Pennsylvania, and now the third one, big one in the nation, we got the April Tinsley. And then a few weeks later, the one in Wisconsin, and now there's been a couple more, and then the, uh, another one here in Indiana. But um, it, it was really rolling. So it, it's it's been fascinating for me. Um, a lot of neat kind of a backstory on mm-hmm. the Susie Hope deal. Yeah. Um, that was kind of inter- that's very interesting side story for me that she kind of opened my eyes to what was possible. And I'm a little frustrated with myself because. I don't know why we didn't figure this out before. You know, I I'm, I don't know why a couple because I mean I as I when I presented this to when I've trained a bunch of other people, a bunch of our people statewide now, and I've, I've trained the Michigan State Police on it, um, on how we did it and how the process and science works. I was familiar with Ancestry.com. I back in 2011 or 12, I went on there and signed up and and did not do the DNA, just did was did my thing, put the names and date of births in, and kind of build a family tree on both sides for my parents wanted to know. Um, so I was familiar with how it works, and you get the little green leaf that pops up if it's a clue. And I built my tree, you know, back into the 1600s on one side, and as far as I could go on the other. So I knew how I knew that worked. I'd never done the DNA thing. I knew they did it, but I didn't. I'm a little disappointed I didn't put two and two together several years ago because it was out there. It was available years ago. Probably five to seven years ago, I bet we could have done this. I'm a little disappointed I didn't. I like to be ahead of things. But there wasn't hardly anybody else ahead of it either. So we weren't too far off. We're like the fifth case in the country ever. So we were pretty far ahead of the curve. But I still wish we would have thought of this in 12 or 13. Now, the other thing about it is, if you listen to CeCe Moore... Uh, and she, when she was on 60 Minutes, for her interview, it was very interesting when she was on there. Um, she, they asked her about that, about why didn't hadn't this happened before, and she talked about the fact that she didn't care for it when it was first presented to her. She was a private genealogist who found people. Uh, she cut her teeth and learned how that business learned how to find figure out who people are by in the adoption business. Mm-hmm. People who were adopted would come to her and say, "Okay, I want to find my parents," and she would find them. That's how she learned how to do this. She told me that on the phone. She said, I've done thousands of these on adoptions. But she told the people in 60 Minutes that when they, when people first came to me about this several years ago and said, would you do this for us? Because she was very well, she had her own TV show. So she was, so that, that's why she got contacted because she's a national expert on this. And she said, even she said, I didn't care for it initially. I said, no. Mm-hmm. I, I think there's privacy issues involved. It's That's not what I do. I find people's families not, I'm not, I don't solve crimes or find criminals. I just, excuse me, she didn't care for it. But then I, over time, I think she realized that look at the good it can do if it's done correctly and you don't use the information incorrectly and you are very careful and make sure you have the right person. This can be really positive and, and have very little, if any, negative effect on other people. Because um, if you think about it, um, you know, she was able to identify to us two, down to two people, two brothers. Um, in actuality, there's a third brother, but he's deceased. Um, he was alive in 88 when it happened, but he was deceased, I believe, in 2001, three years before the notes were left. So we kind of, by elimination, well, it's possible he could have been involved but most likely he did not because he wasn't even alive when the notes came out and the other DNA samples. So we kind of generally eliminated him because of that. Mm-hmm. There's very minimal harm done to the other brother. I mean, it's di- 
it's difficult what he's gone through and he's been helpful to us but it's tough but we didn't you know we, there was no rest involved with him at, at all mm-hmm. and he was never charged he was simply interviewed um, so there's very limited intrusion on, on the other people involved if the law enforcement does their job the right way and we just have to make sure we do it right so I, I think she realized and we all do that now, as long as we do our job correctly it really doesn't do hardly any damage to anybody else but it does can do a lot of good for the community mm-hmm. you find these people when you interviewed his brother did his brother have any suspicions or was he as shocked no we I mean everybody was shocked he, he I mean John Miller's a very quiet guy who kind of kept to himself lived by himself so there was there was no indication from the family that anything like this had gone on and he truly never did anything else not that we're aware of we asked so not that we're aware of did he say why he showed back up at, like to write the barn note and then to um, the barn note and the uh, same reason both of those were done just to get some attention Generally, that's what he said. I mean, both of those things were done to get some attention. Um, he obviously enjoyed some of the attention. Yeah. So, I mean, there's a big gap there between 89 or not. I think the bar notes were found in 1990 and 2004. It's still 14 years. Yeah. And you wonder, you know what? But it, uh, from what he told us in the interview, just just looking for some attention. But fortunately for us, he did in 2004 because we probably might not have been here otherwise. Crazy. But... And there's a lot of interesting sidebars to that, just to the case alone. But this, the whole process is, is uh, it's it's unbelievably powerful. What the, what's available now, if it's done correctly. Do you guys have any intention to use this in other? Well, every one that we can. Every one that we can. That's awesome. Yeah, I mean, there's no reason not to. Um, as long as you follow the rules and do it correctly. Uh, the legal challenges to it are going to be very minimal because of the way you do it. Um, you know, if you're go- if something, if somebody's going to challenge something in court, let's say a piece of evidence that's used, you know, they have to have a reason to challenge, and there have to be some, usually previous precedent set that would make it inadmissible because, or a new one that you might not foresee. But still, the thing in law enforcement, just in general terms, is you never want to go to a court and get some type of a court order like a search warrant or a subpoena the only way you ever do that is is if the information you're providing them is 100% accurate to the best of your knowledge okay Um, and as long as you do that it's going to be admissible as long as you follow the rules Um, in cases like this since it's new the process is new and using a genealogy website we don't know where that's going to go in the courts um, we felt, our attorneys and we felt comfortable that look it's a public free website and it says on it very clearly anyone has access anybody can have access to this so it's not like they're hiding it mm-hmm. it's, it's almost like if you just volunteer to give your information to somebody else's website and they say hey this is public we, you give us your whole family tree and everything anybody can look at this including the police okay you can have so if I go look you can't really argue with me that that I violated your rights of privacy because you gave them up. So we felt comfortable there. Um, you never know what a court might say, but but is, if you limit, if you still stick within the normal parameters of law enforcement, what we think about as far as admissibility on evidence and can we use and can we not use this, 
Um, if you go get a court order or a search warrant or subpoena, that's different than if you do a trash pull, where it's abandoned. That's that's settled law. It's abandoned property. The courts have said that for years. That's been good to go. So we know that's good to go. So if you can obtain a DNA sample that way, do it that way, because it really limits your opportunity for a court challenge against it. Because the courts were decided that's perfectly legal. Uh, whereas if you would go, let's say we took all this genealogy information and put it into a search warrant without doing the trash pull and then went and got a search warrant based on the genealogy information, well, we don't know. It might be fine, but we don't know because it's new. A court might say, I don't like that. Mm -hmm. So why don't risk that. Just do what you know you can do legally. If you, even if you have to follow the person around and wait till they throw their water bottle away, that's perfectly legal. We know that. So if you just do it right and use your head, using the rules of, of evidence that we have available to us, should be fine. So that's what we did, and that's what we would always do. Do you know, was it him that submitted his DNA, or like how far removed was it? Uh, I do know. I, off the top of my head, I can't remember, but there were, there were members on both sides of his family, his mother and father's side, both, that somebody had submitted to GEDmatch directly. It's got to be terrifying for people who, like, I mean, they should be terrified, but who did this? And even if they're not submitting their DNA, their families are going to out them. It's terrifying. It's great. Yeah. I mean, it. I haven't had a single person yet come up to me and say, I don't like this. Not one. I know there's, I've seen, heard a few on the radio mm -hmm. and a few on TV, but I have not had a single person in any community, and I spoke to people all over Indiana and Michigan about mm -hmm. this now and some other places, that came up to me and said, man, this is a bad idea. Everybody says this is awesome. Yeah, for crime solving, I think it, it could get to a weird place. <laughs> I, I really think that, and this is not a new idea, I just, through research, I, I think, because the question is, what do we do? Do we, if you've noticed here in the past month, there's been a somewhat of a big development with familytree.com that entered into the agreement with the FBI. Mm. Google that. Mm -hmm. It's worth reading. They just entered into a formal agreement with the FBI to access some of their information. Mm -hmm. Okay, now that's interesting, because I wondered, where's this going? Mm -hmm. GEDmatch has 650,000 people in it, small website. As genealogy websites go, it's a little one. And we're getting matches one after another out of GEDmatch. That tells you how powerful a small amount is, okay? Accessory.com, 23andMe, 7 million people, 8 million people in those things. 10 times bigger. Think about, I mean, that's... 100% match, I guarantee it. That covers the whole country. I guarantee one of those covers everybody in the entire country. Your, some of these family members in there in DNA. Could not hide from anybody in that. There's no way. So, we got to be careful with that. But how do you... It, 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 it's going to be upsetting to some people to say, hey, don't... That's a private website. It's different. It's private. You pay to be in that one. I don't know I want you to access... I mean, there's a lot of things to talk about here, but look, the idea's been floated. I think it's a great one. What's wrong with just creating a free public website? Anybody that wants to help out law enforcement, yeah. you would have millions of people put their information. If every There's half a million sworn policemen in this country. That's almost the size of GEDmatch. You take all the other first responders, the firemen, the EMS people, the prosecutor's office, coroner's offices, all the retired law enforcement, uh, anybody in the middle, anybody who, and, and all the other general members of the public who want to be on the right side of things and say, you can have my DNA, here it is. We would have millions of people in that thing in no time. And you give me a website with three million people in it, I got everybody. 
that's that's a good way to look at this to do it I think because that way everybody's donating publicly and saying please I want to help I think that's a great way to look at this I would love to see I know there's there has been discussion before I said that this is not a new idea about that I would love to see that get some traction through maybe NICMIC some organization like that that's got a lot of credibility that has already has some websites built that way hey, if you want to do this here's our site you send it you know send a so we got these the kits are generic mm-hmm. get a dna kit we can send it in we'll snp format it and we're going to upload your information in there with your permission and we're going to let law enforcement access it and then law enforcement can get our stuff tested on the snp side as opposed to the scr side we can do both but if we got enough we can do the snp side and then we can just upload the results right into that website and boom it's going to tell us it's going to give us family members or very close family members, and then we can. Then we got to do the genealogy thing. We got to have access to people that have the really good experience and are highly trained genealogists to narrow it down for us. That takes that's that's a skill that is not for the uh, weekend genealogist. That's for somebody who's a professional to make sure you're getting it right. If you talk to CC Morris, she'll tell you. You go into most people's family trees. There's mistakes in there. They get it wrong because a lot of that information is based on other people's family trees. See, they're using if I go ahead and build mine, Ancestry.com then goes ahead and uses my information that I've built, saying that these are my relatives. They combine that with all these other family trees that are intermixed with mine, and they'll, they'll use it for a th- another person's. Well, these three family trees show that they're, so this guy is probably really, she'll tell you there's mistakes in there because you've got people that aren't professional doing it. So that's why you have to be very careful and dot every I and cross every T. you got to look up the marriage records birth records, census, you got to, let's make sure this is the right person, and these are their parents, and then their grandparents, let's make sure, and that's why she is so good at it, and the professionals need to do that. Knowing that it takes such a professional, are you guys limited? I know you said you, you want to do this for as many cases as you mm-hmm. can. Are you limited to how many you can submit? Is there, like, any process right now where people are going through and, like, cataloging all the cases this could apply to, or is it just, like... Well, I know, since I've been around traveling around the state for the last eight months training our guys on this... Um, Everybody, pretty much from our department and a lot of other departments now, are aware of how this works and what they need for their case to qualify. You got to have extra sample. So if you have a case where you've used up all the sample already, there's nothing. It does not apply. You cannot use it in this case. So that eliminates a lot of cases. I mean, there's there's not going to be a ton of cases that this applies to right now the way we're using it. So our people know, for the most part, what cases are going to apply to it and what aren't um, at least by today's standards that that some of that could change and the question becomes okay how far to, for the most part we're you know we're using on homicides and um, you know very serious crimes uh, but 10 years down the road burglaries guy breaks into a house breaks out a window and cuts himself there's two drops of blood okay that's what we need we have a single source DNA sample in other words, it's only one person's yeah. single source. We can SNP that, put it in GEDmatch, or maybe we have our own site by then, and it's going to tell us family members. So there's, I mean, I can see down the road where we can use it for a little bit lower level crimes mm-hmm. because it's available and it's very effective. Holy cow, is it effective? So crazy. Combine that with CODIS, and you've pretty much covered everybody now. Literally. So it's it's just very interesting. Are you guys planning to use it? You know, now that you have new cases, you're getting like you have fresh evidence. Mm-hmm. Do you have to decide CODIS or 23andMe, and 
do you lean one well, or the other? Well, those, we, those are questions that we're kicking around. I've had in, in my trainings with, with other officers and detectives, and um, that question has come up, and we've talked about it. We, we'll see. That's, that is, there can be decisions made down the road about that, have to be made about that. If we have a small amount, which, which way do we test it? Um, those discussions are being had, and I encourage all our guys statewide that if you get a case like this, that's you need to have a very serious discussion amongst the investigative group and the prosecutor's office about okay if we have a very limited sample and we're going to use it up now dna if it's strong dna like blood or something like that where it's strong you know we can do very small amounts and get a full profile on the sdr side so i've told him i said don't don't get too concerned about that because if you have a drop of blood you got enough mm -hmm. in my opinion for both because it takes such a small amount to do str that the, what's left over is going to be enough to do S&P. So, but it's certainly a discussion to be had if you have a very small amount. Where do we want to put our cards here? Which yeah. side are we going? Um, this side here is pretty interesting. It's very powerful. You look at the number of people it's covering compared to the number of people it's covering code, it's not even close. Mm -hmm. I guess my first response is, this one works really well. I'm not sure if we need to bother right now. We can. I would take both, trust me. Mm -hmm. More the better, but... This one really works. We've proven that, and now it's been proven about six more times since ours. Um, everybody knows now this thing works. I can't thank Captain Smith enough for sitting down with me. I hope you all have enjoyed this update episode. It is wonderful to see what's coming for law enforcement. And I hope the future of law enforcement means a lot more update episodes like this. We will be back next week with a brand new episode. Crime Junkie is an audio Chuck production. So what do you think, Chuck? Do you approve?